Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply on this special Oscar nominations morning. I'm Katie Ritchie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and we have in three different time zones uh, in New York, we have our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Uh, as usual in California, we have our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Good morning. And coming to you from the Sundance Film Festival, we have our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. We all got up varying degrees of early to watch the Oscar nominations this morning, where uh, Tiffany Haddish reinvented pronunciation of half of the names of the nominees, uh, which unfortunately didn't include her. We have a ton to talk about, but I kind of wanted to start just by going around the group of us. Mike, starting with you, what surprised and or delighted you most in these nominations? I think what delighted me most is that, as I expected, but I was not entirely confident that Jordan Peele and Greta Gerwig both got nominated for Best Director. Best Director in general turned out to be a nice group of people, and it does certainly signal that Shape of Water is probably the the likeliest Best Picture winner. Uh, Since Martin McDonough was not nominated there, that kind of suggests that if he wasn't nominated for Director, how the heck is it going to win Best Picture? We've seen that happen in the past recently with Argo, but that was a really strange set of circumstances that does not figure to be repeated this year. So that was great. And I love seeing Mary J. Blige get nominated in two categories. Did somebody say she's the first person ever get nominated for Best Song and Best Supporting Actress in the same year? Yeah. That's awesome. New record. Yeah. I mean, th- there were a lot of nice things that happened that I was kind of hoping would happen, but w- w- was not confident would happen. <laughs> Put it that way. Uh, how about you, Richard? I'm pretty excited for all and surprised about all the uh, Phantom Thread love. We thought that Daniel Day-Lewis would get in. We were wondering about Leslie Manville. She got in. It's nominated for Best Picture. I mean, it, it did pretty well, given that it had seemed to be one of the ones that had fallen by the wayside in early awards things. Yeah, it seemed like one of the, it was going to be like a critical favorite that uh, just never like rose to the level of the Academy's attention. But I, I saw someone suggest on Twitter that like, it was the uh, last screener that they watched, which can count for a lot. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, you know, I think the big one here is Johnny Greenwood uh, for his score. I think that that's maybe the movie's best chance of winning, though, you know, Alexander Desplat for A Shape of Water, he's he's a tough one to beat. I have been counting on him as a winner there, too. Uh, Joanna, how about you? I'm going to go ahead and stay on brand and say that I'm really excited for the Logan nomination in Best Adopted Screenplay. <laughs> yes. Because I loved Logan so much. And it is the first comic book movie to ever get an adapted screenplay nomination. And I think it's really well deserved because what they did in terms of remixing the source material was pretty fresh and deserving of recognition. They're n- it's never going to win, but I'm happy it's there. It also means that Hugh Jackman is in two nominated films. <laughs> Good for him. What a year. How disappointed are you that The Greatest Showman didn't uh, get that last minute best picture surge you were hoping for? It got the nomination in my heart. So that's all that really counts, I think. <laughs> I'm going to go uh, negative campaigning. with. The, I, just, I think the thing that shocked me most, even though he got the Globe nomination, is that Christopher Plummer got a supporting actor nomination for All the Money in the World. Like, not because he's bad in it or, you know, he's a recent winner. He has kind of all the the usual shape of a nominee. But, you know, this is a category where people spend, you know, months training or losing weight or gaining weight, researching their part. And he, like, he spent like 10 days on the whole thing. It just shocks me that this is something that they really want to give a nomination to. It sort of demystifies the whole process, doesn't it? Or, or, or sort of delegitimizes it anyway. It really does. <laughs> I really think that is just the Academy saying, hey, good job with that. You know, like that that's their way of sort of like, giving them the nod uh, without nominating for Best Picture or something like that, which is, you know, understandable because they did pull off something crazy in 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 the pursuit of not, you know, supporting a, a, a person who's been accused of doing a lot of bad things. But it means that someone like Michael Stuhlbarg didn't get in, which is a real bummer to me. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
I was trying to decide whether I would prefer Christopher Plummer be nominated or like Ridley Scott be nominated. And I think I would prefer Christopher Plummer be nominated, except for exactly what Richard said in terms of it elbows Michael Stolberg out of a much deserved nomination there. It was not a great day for Call Me By Your Name, right? I mean, they got a Best Picture nomination, so that's great. But that, that, uh, and, and Timothy Chalamet, yeah. but that supporting actor category, they got blanked. And, and Luca Guadagnino is blanked for, for director. Right, right. Which to me is disappointing. You know, there has been some, let's say, relief among some people that Martin McDonough was not nominated for Best Director and that Jordan Peele and Greta Gerwig were. But the surprise one here that I didn't, it was Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, which I think was probably Luca's slot. But, you know, Phantom Thread is a great movie, so it's not undeserving. It's just sad that Luca couldn't get in there. Well, this is what I don't understand. I watched that movie and thought to myself, as a good liberal white guy, I'm kind of appalled by this movie. Like, this seems like a misogynistic movie. And then everybody seems to think it's a feminist movie. So I'm just totally confused. I can't, I'm failing utterly in every way at being like a, I don't know what, what I want to be. Somebody who's conscious. I wouldn't ding you for that. I, but I would say that I don't think of it as a feminist or not feminist movie. I think of it as just like a here are humans and they're like ugly and messy movie. That's what it read like to me. And I and I retract what I said to Richard months ago about it looking cold. I didn't find it cold at all. I really, really loved this movie. So I think the other thing about that movie is that it's it, much in the same way that Mother was, I think, but much more successfully than Mother, is it's really autobiographical, I think, in a way. Like, I think that Paul Thomas Anderson is kind of making fun of himself uh, in, in the Daniel Day-Lewis character. But I found that horrifying. Like, it clearly is autobiographical, and I thought, what a terrible autobiographical story. But I think in the same way, like, I don't think that Maya Rudolph is routinely poisoning him to make the relationship work, but they probably have some compromise to sort of, you know, f- correct his ego or whatever. Like, it's a hyperbolized version of a, of a relationship. But I think that it's really loving in its bizarre way. I think I could see a sort of negative read of the movie, but to my mind, it's great. Uh, I did bring the screener home for Christmas and was pretty excited to show it to my family. And my dad and my sister watched it. And about halfway through, my dad turned to me and said, hey, so what's the point of this movie? (laughs) (laughs) He was not into it. We got to have your dad on the podcast. He and I could talk about the Phantom Thread for a while. I just hope that he, uh, so he did like a ask me anything on the Phantom Thread Twitter feed and had this response kind of go viral where someone posted a a paparazzi photo of him and Maya Rudolph where they just look miserable walking down the street. And his response was incredibly charming and funny. And I'm just hoping that's what got him the nomination because it made me really adore him even more than I already did. Yeah, that whole Twitter AMA, which feels very off-brand for P.T. Anderson, but the whole Twitter AMA was delightful. But that being said, um, I heard him on Mark Maron's podcast, I want to say like two years ago, something like that. And that was also very charming and delightful. So I really think P.T. Anderson is one of those like stealth, warm people that like watching their films, you think they wouldn't be, but he really is. So, But then maybe watching Phantom Thread, maybe he's a, a holy terror at home. Who knows? <laughs> Let's talk about the, the specific the nominations. I'm kind of curious about how we feel about The Shape of Water at this point. Mike, you mentioned up top that he got the director nomination and got picture, got the most nominations by far. I think his 13. Usually when a film gets a ton of nominations, it's not necessarily because it's their favorite. It's just it qualifies in a lot of the technical categories. You know, it's going to get nominated for Best Visual Effects when Call Me By Your Name isn't. It didn't get nominated for Best Visual Effects. I should note that. But something like production design, uh, it shows up. Anyway, how do we feel about the strength of The Shape of Water after this? It's a weird thing because it seems like the filmmaking and creative community is responding to the craftsmanship of it, which um, 
is, I suppose, impeccable. But then it seems like there, I, I keep hearing that there are people, you, you have told me this, I think, Katie, that this is, the, that people think it's the most romantic movie ever. But in the circles that I run in, I don't hear the kind of passion for The Shape of Water that I hear for things like Get Out or Lady Bird or even Call Me By Your Name. And so I don't know, I, I assume at this point, all the indicators, I guess, are that Shape of Water would win. But then up until this morning, the indicators seemed to suggest that Three Billboards was going to win. So I do think it's still a little shaky, but it, but I think it's probably fairly clearly in the front runner status. Does that sound right? I think that does sound right, Mike. But there's a part of me that wonders if it's kind of the compromise choice in a way, which isn't to diminish the movie. I think it's a great movie. But like, you know, it's tasteful enough. It's from a director people like and have been wanting to reward somehow for a long time. It's maybe not a personal favorite for as many people as other films are, but as a consensus choice, it feels right. It has enough of the kind of political dimension that, that you know, that makes it not a problematic movie. I, I think it checks a lot of boxes in a way that other movies that are maybe p- more personally beloved don't. So that's kind of where how I'm reading it. But I also think in a kind of perverse way, Three Billboards fits that bill, too. So I'm just not sure. Hmm. Yeah, I keep thinking that the three billboards pendulum is just going to have to swing again. Like we keep saying there's a long time between now and the Oscars themselves. I think it's a little bit less than six weeks at this point. And that movie just has so much to chew on and so much to kind of argue about, which I think is one of its strengths is what makes people like it so much is that there's a lot to talk about. But it feels like The Shape of Water isn't going to be subject to that kind of thing. Like that movie kind of is what it is. And you know, if you like it, you know, if you don't. And like if three billboards gets taken down at some point, which still seems possible, like Shape of Water seems poised to like really cruise at that point. Well, did you guys see the Neil Patrick Harris tweet about three billboards? He didn't name Wesley Morris, but was definitely in response, clearly in response to Wesley Morris's very sort of well-articulated assessment, essay kind of critique of it in the New York Times. And I think people were shocked that the New York Times went that hard against a kind of front-runner Oscar movie. And it's funny because the thread that Neil Patrick Harris started, there's all kinds of people in there. There's Roxanne Gay, there's other actors. Michael McKeon is in there defending the movie. It it started a big conversation. I think that conversation is not necessarily going to go away just because basically it didn't get nominated for Best Director. Like it's still in there. It still has a lot of nominations, a lot of acting nominations. And it's still a movie that people want to discuss. I keep saying, you know, when I watched it, I thought... Uh, oh, you know, I've been a fan of Martin McDonough's for a long time, and I know that he's a kind of a nihilist who likes to torture his characters and basically thinks like all of humanity kind of sucks. And so for me, I was just like, oh, this is a Martin McDonough movie. But I do think, you know, I, and I've said this before on the show, including when we talked to Mark Harris, like I think that the critique has resonated with me and has changed the way I view the movie. And I think it's interesting to see how that process works with people. Some people kind of say, oh, wow, this critique is right. And other people, I think, end up just rebelling really hard against it and just saying, why are you trying to put this piece of art in a certain, you know, critical framework that that you like? You know, you're not meeting the art on its own terms. I think I think it's an interesting debate. This thread is fascinating to me because, like, whatever you think about the movie, like, dismissing a Wesley Morris piece is as, like, dumbass, you know, that's that's sort of people gathering in their corners, right? You know, like, I, I kind of understand that if you maybe have a personal stake in the movie, your friend is in the movie, whatever, I understand being defensive. But, like, what is true is that criticism thoughtful criticism, which is, you know, the kind of criticism that Wesley Morris usually trucks in, is always going to be subjective. It's always going to be seeing the movie through your own personal worldview. You know, Roxanne Gay telling Neil Patrick Harris that his whiteness is showing is uh, 
Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, people really just let fly in that threat. Oh, we have so long to fight. <laughs> There's just going to be so many dumb fights between now and the Oscars. I-, I was not aware of this tweet, Mike, until you just mentioned it. And holy cow. I mean, there's like four things in there that it's like, Neil, re- read a blog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come on, man. It's very classic sort of L.A. versus New York, you know, creatives versus critics, but also like, but it does seem like something that bubbled up in film Twitter has now kind of bubbled up all the way to New York Times, you know, important essay in a section that's filled with for your consideration ads that everybody takes incredibly seriously in Hollywood. And they don't like it. They do not like this critique. This is like annoying to them that critics would sort of take it upon themselves to say this movie doesn't work. For these reasons, you know, it's very interesting because I think the critical framework, the framework that critics bring to a film and gauging it is very different to the one that actors and and maybe even directors take. And I think that may ultimately explain why Shape of Water does well, because there's stuff that actors and craftspeople see in it that personally I don't know if I'm seeing in it. Well, this is where the uh, the breadth of the new Academy really starts coming into play because you think about who votes on Best Pictures. It's every single Academy member. They're spread around the world. There's a lot of people who are young. There's a lot of people who don't work in Hollywood at all. Like That level of groupthink may have less impact when it comes to actually voting for Best Picture. So you can get people who are, you know, like British or Turkish filmmakers who always thought the three billboards had race issues and like weren't like part of the club there. I mean, it could be interesting. Like I think if that is how Moonlight won, and I, I don't think anybody knows if that pattern is going to repeat itself this year. My worry is that people are like tired of sort of dealing with these issues, you know, like a- even after just like a year or two. But I think again, Shape of Water has enough going for it. I mean, it's not really the cast isn't racially diverse or anything, but like, you know, the director is Mexican and it has these issues about sexuality and stuff like that. I think that maybe it's, it's not Moonlight, obviously, but it's also not Three Billboards. So I think that it, that's why it's, I think it's the front runner right now. So have we all given up on the hope that maybe Lady Bird or Get Out might, uh, might rush to the front here? You know, our LA office seems like maybe optimistic that Get Out might be the one to get there. It's kind of amazing what a difference a lack of a Martin McDonough nomination makes. Like all of a sudden, things seem more open, at least for some people. You guys seem to be a fully on inevitable shape of water. I don't want to say inevitable. I think another theory that's floating around that may have no basis at all is that Lady Bird and Get Out will sort of split some kind of like, I don't know what, progressive millennial vote or something. But I, but I, who the hell knows, you know? I don't know. Like, I just felt after watching the SAG Awards, with with love and respect was one of the most boring award ceremonies I can remember ever covering for Vanity Fair just because everything felt like expected and not exciting for me. And so then I was like, okay, is that it? Like, do we know who all our acting winners are and best picture winner is? And you guys are telling me that based on these nominations, like the race is open back up and that's kind of exciting. But uh, I I feel sort of not resigned in a bad way, but just sort of like, I like everyone, but nobody I'm rooting for is going to win. Well, keep hope alive, Joanna, because last year I was telling you that Moonlight had no chance and then it won. It's so. true. I'm going to go back to rooting for Lady Bird. <laughs> Lady Bird it is then. <laughs> but by the way, I get it. Speaking of Twitter, since I'm bringing tweets to your attention, guys, Chrissy Teigen just tweeted, John said, I can't talk shit about any nominated movies, so I will simply say Get Out and I, Tanya should win everything. Also, one of the highly nominated movies sucks. So... <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's three billboards, right? I mean, or Shape of Water. I mean, who knows? She could hate Phantom Thread for all I know. <laughs> what if it's Phantom Thread? I, she could hate Darkest Hour. I mean, uh, Chrissy Teigen contains multitudes. <laughs> um, to talk about the acting categories, Joanna, that you brought up, I don't 
think these nominations change what I thought about any of the acting categories. Like, I think maybe if Woody Harrelson hadn't gotten the nomination supporting actor, it would have suggested like a little bit less strength for three billboards, but he's in there. So it feels like Sam Rockwell is going to run away there. Um, I, I still feel like it could very well match the SAGs. Yeah. And the Globes, you know? God, yeah. Globes, too. Well, Globes at least had, what, Sersha and James Franco. Can we just take a moment to pause and be glad that James Franco, like, for whatever he may or may not have done and how he wants to handle these allegations, him not being nominated seems like the best case scenario. By James Franco, do you mean Alison Brie's brother-in-law? <laughs> I do. <laughs> Who she does have to answer for everything that he does now. Yeah, yeah sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm stealing your tweets, Joanna, about that. But that's one of the big kind of bullet dodges. I mean, Gary Oldman's still in there. The, the Franco thing is the, the fresher kind of outrage, I guess. But that had looked almost like a lock up until a couple of weeks ago. And now, you know, obviously didn't happen. So I think that the Academy can breathe the sigh of relief. And, you know, we had someone on Twitter engaging us because I guess we had used some language when talking about Daniel Kaluuya that like we hoped he would get in and it seemed uncertain. And yet he had been, you know, nominated for a globe, a SAG, like he seemed like a front runner. And, the, and that Twitter person was right. And, and I'm, I'm glad to see that kind of confirmed this morning, you know, because it's very well deserved. I think that that movie easily could have just been recognized uh, on technical or bigger merits uh, without really, you know, acknowledging that Kalia's performance is so central to the success of that movie. So I'm happy, yay for that. And and also yay in, in the opposite way for, for Franco not, not being on that list. Yeah. I think the person who uh, called us out on Kalia was right, but also like, it seemed like we had reason to worry just because young actors so rarely get nominated, breakthrough actors. So you rarely get nominated. Like he kind of, he does, he's, you know, hasn't really been known before this. Like he doesn't fit the bill. He fits the bill much more typically of a best actress nominee. Same with Timothy Chalamet. So with both of them getting in there, like neither of them are 30 yet. I don't know when was the last time that happened that there were two Best Actor nominees under 30. So uh, they're, they're kind of uncommon in a, in a really great way that I think bodes well for how this category could get more exciting in years to come. Well, is this is this where we talk about what Mike was talking about elsewhere, which is the continued snubbing of Tom Hanks? I mean, oh listen, Tom, Tom Hanks is doing fine, but like the Academy really does seem to not want to acknowledge right? his greatness. It just seems like like, I mean, now look, I did not, this was not his best performance, I don't think. You know, it was it was fine. And I think Meryl had that moment where she decides to run the story, belated spoiler alert. And in that moment, I think she cinches the nod. It's a little bit of a hammy and, you know, in all, with all due respect to one of our greatest actors, I don't think it was his finest hour. And somebody pointed out when I was saying, like, what the hell does the Academy have against um, uh, Tom Hanks that, like, his Captain Phillips performance was a lot better. I mean, that ending, that last scene is just, like, how the hell did he get not get nominated for that? But this is a long-running pattern, right? I mean, he it's it's been a long time since he's been nominated. I feel like we just take him for granted. Like we just know that we love Tom Hanks and he does good work and he just, uh, he doesn't necessarily need a third Oscar, but uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about the guy. He just can't keep being in the running this close and not get it. I think you're right, Katie, that the taking for granted thing. And I think also is that he's playing, you know, between this and Sully and uh, Captain Phillips and, and Bridge of Spies, these very competent guys who don't need a lot of like praise or reassurance or whatever like that. They're not, it's not flashy and, you know, and I think maybe some of that is bleeding into kind of voting thinking. It's like, oh, well, you know, like he's he's just this kind of workmanlike, competent guy. He doesn't need awards. He can land a plane in the Hudson. He doesn't need an Oscar. Right. Exactly. Like, you know, he's got two of the things. So, well, Streep has three. So Meryl Streep is great in the post, but I was sort of hoping for a shakeup there, you know, to that narrative. Uh, we had talked, I think, last week about Jessica Chastain possibly getting in, which would have been exciting for Molly's game. That's one that feels like 
I was revisiting uh, the 2005 Oscar race uh, with, uh, with Joe Reed, a friend of the podcast, last night because I that movie, The Upside of Anger, popped into my head and which Joan Allen was not nominated for, which she should have been. <laughs> but um, uh, Judy Dench was nominated that year for Mrs. Henderson Presents, a movie no one I don't think remembers. Uh, she was nominated the following year, so you can get into these spates of just like, oh yeah, her, you know, or him, whatever, like over and over again. And Meryl obviously has been in that for a long time, and I just think that it's really. High time, as good as she is in the post, that we or they stop doing that. I, I always like to seeing who's like gets to show up for the first time. Like we talked about Timothy Chalamet and Daniel Kaluuya. Well, Best Actress does have uh, first time nominees and Margot Robbie and, you know, star of Suicide Squad. Oscar winning Suicide Squad. <laughs> <laughs> um, we can talk about our friend Leslie Manville, who was on the uh, podcast a couple weeks ago talking about Phantom Thread. I feel like that nomination was something of a surprise because Supporting Actress was kind of this weird scrum with like four or five different people who might have gotten in for one or two slots. She's so good in Phantom Thread. I love her so much in that. And, you know, when I was rewatching it with my family and my dad not liking it, I, I, I was struck by how, you know, she's not very big part in the movie. She's, she's not in much of it, but what she does with her, her little screen time is really great. And she's probably benefiting from the more widespread esteem for that movie that the Academy has that she kind of just got rolled up and everything else, which is, you know, which is how, how plenty of actors get nominated for things. Um, but who do we think anyone was left out of that? I mean, I'm, I'm honestly like as much as that movie is issuey, I, I'm a little sad that Hong Chow is not on that list. Or downsizing. I feel kind of glad that Hong Chao got her moment with downsizing. I think she's really good in it, but I I'm, I feel like she's not going to get her first nomination for something that's maybe a little less uh, dire to watch. Um, I don't know. I feel like it maybe could work out really well for her that this is the movie that like propels her up, but none of us have to ever think about downsizing again. What's the one movie that we were sort of hoping we wouldn't have to talk about anymore that we will still have to talk about through this these last six weeks uh maybe maybe all the money in the world that movie is such a weird like frankenstein uh that is now still in the conversation like it had the whole wage gap conversation which i I was kind of ready to get rid of i mean i don't think christopher Plummer. i don't think anyone thinks he's likely to win but uh but he's in there i'd really hoped that we because we've talked about it so much already the hungarian film on body and soul which is nominated for four lines i just like guys we have talked about that too much i'm just (laughs) sick of hearing about it it's been on body and soul season for months it's over it's exhausting um speaking of foreign language i i I, it's really cool that a fantastic woman, the Chilean film, got nominated. That stars a trans actress in a lead role and is about a trans woman, you know, dealing with certain degrees of prejudice and discrimination. That's that's a really exciting thing uh, to see in 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 a big category. It seems like the front runner. Yeah, I think it could. Whereas the front runner in documentary, everyone thought was Jane and didn't get nominated. The Jane Goodall doc, yeah. uh, which seems fishy. I mean, those those documentarians are a uh, finicky group. And there must be something about that film that they just don't like because everyone just assumed it was going right, right through. I saw Faces Places last night and it was, of course, delightful. But like, I am actually kind of surprised that that belongs in the documentary category, given how much of it is so clearly sort of scripted. Does that make any sense? I don't know. Maybe that's my ignorance of the documentary category showing, but. No, I I hear you, Joanna. I mean, I, I mean, I think I think it counts. But like in the same way that I think that Jane, you know, uh, which, which again is not nominated, that was mostly archival or entirely our old footage. I mean, it, the the film was not filmed, you know, uh, anew. It was it was all just kind of which is not doesn't disqualify it exactly. But I think that they filmed new interviews with Jane Goodall. I think yeah, there's a little bit of yes. new stuff. But maybe maybe their theory was just. Hey, anybody who came across a box of footage that's this amazing could could make a movie that's really gorgeous and cool, and that's not necessarily like a phenomenal achievement. I don't know. 
I wanted to ask you guys about Mudbound, which got a, a substantial number of nominations. The cinematographer, Rachel Morrison, is the first woman ever nominated in the Best Cinematography category. Um, Mary J. Blige gets her uh, historic double nomination and gets in for screenplay. I, I think I feel like it has been the kind of champion of people saying that it was being mistreated throughout award season. But this to me feels like about right for Mudbound. Do you feel like it's uh, kind of maybe shaking the Netflix curse a little bit? Yeah, I think so. I think Netflix probably, you know, is celebrating this morning. I think it's so excited about Rachel Morrison. I think this the screenplay nomination is big. This is probably a big break in the dam. You know, I'm at I'm at Sundance right now, and there are some Netflix films here that could be awards worthy in in the future. Uh, particularly a movie by Tamara Jenkins with a really great central performance by Katherine Hahn. And so, you know, it makes you kind of hope that that means that because Mudbound has done so well, that other Netflix films can, even if I'm skeptical about their model. Though Mudbound has a certain kind of relevance, timeliness to it that not all Netflix movies have. So that might help it more than a a movie about two white people in New York City, which is this Tamara Jenkins movie. Well, and and Netflix, I believe, including the docs, has seven nominations this year. So they clearly are out of the doghouse or whatever it was that they were in. And it seems to me that it is somewhat miraculous that they managed to get Mudbound. You know, they make a lot of movies and a lot of them get buried and Mudbound has been out or has been at least, you know, being screened for a really long time. Um, I I saw it at Sundance last year, right, Richard? And then uh, and then I interviewed Dee Reese at a screening in the middle of the summer. They managed to kind of keep it front of mind for people. I, I think it probably did benefit from the star power of Mary J. Blige. In addition to the film being really good, Dee Reese is just like an incredible ambassador for that film. So I think that's exciting and shows that they have figured this out sort of. And they're going to need to be really good at this if they really do release 80 films in the next year or whatever crazy ambitions that they have. But no, it's nice to see it's nice to see Mudbound in there. I think that this year is like suggesting that last year was not a fluke. That that this really is a new academy that is more interested in kind of celebrating new voices, celebrating diverse points of view, um, pushing that kind of stuff. And and maybe maybe the difference between Merrill and Tom Hanks is just that this is a new academy that's invested in Me Too and Time's Up and wants to celebrate a woman like Meryl Streep. I mean, I think it's it's very interesting having covered this for a long time, the old instincts of like, oh, well, if an old 65-year-old, you know, man who's a little bit creepy would like it, then it'll probably get nominated. Like, that's over. It really is over. And, I, and not to keep bringing up Mark Harris constantly, but he pointed out a good thing, I think, when we interviewed him, which is it, you don't have to take a complete turnover. It doesn't take that many people being added to a group to change the dynamics of the group. And it seems to me like the dynamics of the Academy have changed for real now. I keep imagining, like, looking at the Best Picture and Best Director lineup, like, you can think of a version of the Academy from a couple years ago where that Best Director lineup is instead Joe Wright and Paul Thomas Anderson and Steven Spielberg. And then, you know, you have, like, all white men nominated in Best Director again, or, you know, you get Stephen Frears for Victoria and Abdul. Like, there's all kinds of different ways where it wouldn't have to be that different for this not to feel nearly as exciting. And like you said, Mike, like, a new Academy is coming. So I, I think you're right. Like, no matter how the winners shake out, and even if Three Billboards isn't, like, the selection of the wokest corners of the internet, it does feel like we already have evidence that change is happening. Yeah. Now, I will say the other bummer that I, we haven't talked about is the Florida Project missing the Best Picture nomination, which I'm quite surprised by. I, that was maybe, that was up there in my top three favorite movies of the year, I would say. I have to wonder if Willem Dafoe had won the Globe or if he had continued his winning streak, if the Florida Project would have stayed above water there. But Sam Rockwell coming back out of from behind to take it. I'm really sad for Willem Dafoe. 
It's such a weird year. I've been talking about this a lot on Twitter, and I know we've talked about this on this podcast, but like, it's such a weird year for people that I like so much winning awards that I ultimately feel disappointed that they've won. You know what I mean? Like Alison Janney or Sam Rockwell. Like I love these actors so much. Martin McDonough is a is a writer who I've admired for a very long time and Frances McDormand. And so like all these wins I, I should be thrilled for, but they're winning over people that I just feel deserve it far more this year. Like justice for Lori Metcalf. What is going on? So Joanna, I have to keep reminding you, all these people are very happy. They just got nominated for Oscars this morning. It's not, there's still, we got five weeks to go here or however long it is. So Mike Hogan, I really appreciate you, all your comfort that you're giving me. (laughs) (laughs) The comfort that I take on the Florida project is just looking at the trajectory of Sean Baker's career, where his first few movies were just kind of like really tiny festival, uh, you know, like well-liked, but not even necessarily big hits. And then Dream kind of pops up and it's got this great story about being shot on an iPhone and everyone's like, oh, we got a Gotham nomination. That's a big deal for that movie. And now the Florida Project gets Oscar attention. Like it, it feels like he's on a good track and that whatever the next thing he makes is going to like break really big. So I think if you're, you're Sean Baker, you're still pretty proud of how this all panned out. Yeah. And, and talking with people here at Sundance um, just about Oscars and just the state of indie film and all that stuff. His name, Sean Baker's name just keeps coming up. It really seems like people in the industry, both on, you know, in the productions end, on the publicity end, on the journalistic end, you know, he's just really well liked. So I think that while this is disappointing, I think that he's really solidified himself as a kind of go to you know, filmmaker to sort of that people cite as as one of the good ones, which is nice to hear. Can I bring up something really random that I just kind of noticed while scrolling kind of down the below the line things? Yeah. Kobe Bryant is now an Oscar nominee. Yeah. <laughs> he is. He uh, what he produced a short is that an animated short yeah about basketball apparently that's problematic too uh, that's true it won't get as much attention as some of the bigger ones but you know but it's always interesting when to look those smaller categories we see everything yeah those shorts can produce some strange things yeah I wanted to bring up in terms of uh, random things the best editing category which I think we've talked about several times before is being kind of a bellwether for best picture um, and you've got Baby Driver which I think is a great choice in there as an action movie that's got good editing wasn't necessarily going to be a best picture contender but also I Tanya Baby Driver has twice as many Oscar nominations as Suicide Squad I just want to point that out <laughs> so some some justice has been served how do you think I, Tanya got in there for editing? Like, cause I, when I saw that, I was like, Oh, it's getting a best picture nomination. And then it didn't. Those figure skating scenes. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. I didn't love I, Tanya, but I thought the figure skating scenes were amazing, but I saw it on a screener at home. Other people who saw it in the theater said they thought it, they didn't look as good, but I thought the figure skating was incredible. Having lived through the Tanya Kerrigan years and watched all of those performances, I just thought it was Joanna was an unindicted co-conspirator in the Kerrigan story. (laughs) (laughs) The the new identity of Shane Stand right here on this podcast. I really liked I, Tanya, and I'm sorry that it didn't get in. I'm sorry that that I like it. I'm sorry that I'm problematic. I like it, too. I'm not sorry. I hate myself for all the things that I like. You don't have to be sorry that you like it. (laughs) (laughs) The last random thing I wanted to bring up is in the best visual effects category, the nomination for Kong Skull Island definitely took me by surprise. Because you thought it would get more? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. yeah I, I thought uh, Brie Larson was uh, had that Best Actress campaign locked down. Uh, yeah, that is really surprising of like all the movies to single out. like that. It was a good-looking monkey. Yeah, the branches nominate, so like they know what they're doing. But it's just funny you know, to sort of see it from the outside and be like, oh, okay. I also saw that movie at home. I did not see it in the theater. I thought it was much better than I expected it to be. It was a good-looking monkey uh, ape 
I get it. I like I love that category because like that category is just like, hey, here you go, genre genre nerds. Here's some Star Wars and some Blade Runner for you. We got you a Marvel movie too. It's fine. Blade Runner got a bunch of nominations. That Elvis Casino scene really paid off for uh, Blade Runner. Yeah. Now we get to worry about Roger Deakins getting snubbed again. I don't know. Like, I guess maybe Shape of Water would be the biggest competition on cinematography for him there because it might just sweep. But uh, I don't know. It feels like maybe Deakins finally gets it after all. That does seem like a big sort of hole there that Shape of Water didn't get visual effects. Yeah, I feel like it just because it's pretty much just the creature and a lot of that is like kind of is makeup and, you know, it feels like it kind of um, crosses the line a little bit. But I I definitely thought it was going to get in there. And I guess Kong Skull Island was just that much of of an achievement, an overwhelming achievement. It's a good ape. I mean, it not only lost, it lost out to Kong Skull Island. Okay. I, I was going to make a joke about Sally Hawkins being in Kong Skull Island, but she was in Godzilla, right? So, like, yeah. she's in that world. She sure was. And with um, Julia Pinoche and, and... And Brian Cranston. No, but, like, so she's in that cinematic universe, which is crazy. Okay, can I say one other thing about Shape of Water? I'm very happy that uh, Octavia Spencer got nominated, but I really hope next time she's nominated, it's a, it's a better role. I want to see a or it's not being a woman in the '60s who works for white people, which is what she's been floors. nominated for yeah. every single time. That would, I would like to see her with a juice. I wonder role if she time. and Christoph Waltz have had like a conversation about being nominated multiple times for the same role. <laughs> I kind of wonder if she's just going to remain like so well liked and picking good movies that she's just going to get like ten Oscar nominations, all for like variations on the same thing. Like, I don't think I'd be mad because uh, she's great and she deserves the success that she gets. But it, it is a strange pattern she's got. Before we talk too much about her picking great movies, I just want to mention that she was in Bad Santa 2. And The Shack. But but great in Snowpiercer. So, um, did we talk enough or at all about Denzel Washington, this Denzel Washington nomination? I don't think so. No, ha- Richard, you saw Roman Israel, yeah, right? Yeah, I saw the, the world premiere at Toronto. And I... I- which famously like didn't go that no, well. No, it did not go well at all. And I think that they since cut twelve minutes out of the film since they screened it in Toronto. You know, I'm surprised because that movie didn't seem to have any sort of traction when it came out in the fall. Uh, but Denzel Washington is really good in it. And what's interesting about him in that movie is that he's really doing a thing. Like he's doing a character in a way that we haven't quite seen. He's been sort of, you know, doing variations on his Denzel um, sort of persona, but this is further afield of that. You know, he's got this crazy hair and his teeth and he's just like, it's like a whole different thing. I think it's a worthy nomination for a movie that maybe isn't as, or no, is definitely not as good as the central performance. And I think as a stopgap against you know, Franco, let's be honest. Uh, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that. What's interesting, like, is I felt like last year when Denzel was nominated, he was put almost, I want to say, in the Jack Nicholson seat. Wasn't he? Like, he was up front and he was making, like, great reaction faces. <laughs> and so- Yeah, I feel like because everyone knew Viola Davis was yeah. going to win. So, like, you wanted to see Denzel Washington react in the audience. But his reaction to, like, the the Alala Moonlight snafu, hi- him and Meryl Streep had my two favorite sort of faces. And that. The Rock. Don't forget but, The Rock. But, like, I kind of, like, that might be part of it and, and there are there have been a million people who have been nominated in in years past just so that like the Oscars could seat them in the front of the theater. And if that's Denzel's like kind of new role as like a statesman who has earned his place, like Meryl, just sort of like a default. Yep, you get a nomination too. I guess I can't complain about that. We really have missed out on the like a lack of a Jack Nicholson. I feel like Meryl has done that. Like Oprah was that at the Golden Globes, but uh, we need someone who's just going to show up every year and. 
you know, it seems like these guys aren't all that busy. Someone wants to go to the Oscars every year and make faces. Uh, listen, I'm telling you, Denzel, let's watch his face this year. <laughs> I could, uh, I'm fine with Denzel being yeah. playing that role. He's not the funniest, funniest guy in the world. He's kind of droll, though. Like, Jack Jack was different. Jack, like, looked, you know, half in the bag every single time. But Denzel just looks like... <laughs> Denzel just looks, like, genuinely bemused by, like, the circus going around, you know, on around him. Well, guys, we still have several weeks to go before the Oscars themselves, so uh, we'll still be here. We're going to um, still have plenty to talk about. I'm going to make you all watch the shorts. Uh, you don't know that yet, but that's been our tradition in years past, so we can all get terribly depressed by whatever the documentary short nominees are. So stay tuned. We have a lot to do between now and the Oscars themselves. And you can find everything we wrote today about the Oscars at VanityFair.com. I'm sure there's more to come. Then you can find us all on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Jarothis. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best description of seeing Richard Lawson on the streets at Sundance goes to Joanna Robinson. Looked, you know, half in the bag every single time. <laughs>